Well, good morning. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. We have been a campus of the Village Church, and we are becoming Citizens Church, which is our own local uh, church here. And so we're excited if uh, all of that is really confusing to you. There's a backstory that we'd love uh, to share with you. And so you just ask those questions, and we'll uh, give you those answers, especially if you're, if you're new here. Turn with me to John chapter 12. We have been in this uh, series in the book of John for the last, oh, I don't know, year or so, and we will be in it over the summer. And here we're in John chapter 12, and chapter 12 is really an important turning point in the book. It, it brings something to a close. John has told us in chapter 20 that the reason he wrote the book is so that uh, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and would have life in his name. And so that's not the first time you've heard me say that. It's not the first time that we've said that in going through the book. The point of the book of John is that, that you would believe that he's Christ and that you'd have life in his name. Uh, this, in chapter 12, brings to a close Jesus's ministry. From here, Jesus has a four-chapter conversation with his disciples, and then he is arrested, and then he is crucified, and then he raises again, and then he ascends to heaven. And so this, that... Um, mission of John to put on display the life of Jesus in such a way that we would believe and have life in his name. It really comes to an end here in chapter 12. And what you see at the end of chapter 12 is John makes these concluding statements about belief. And when I read through it, uh, it was not what I expected it to be. He is going to give the why behind belief, and he's going to give the why behind unbelief, and, it, and it, sh it dramatically shapes how we see God and how we see our own lives as Christians. So here's, in light of that, here's what we'll do. I'm going to read the end of the chapter and explain that, and then we'll go to the beginning of the chapter and just get as far as we can, uh, and we'll finish it next Sunday. So we'll be in chapter 12 this morning and next Sunday. We'll start at the end of the chapter. Look with me at verse 36, and as we read, see if you can pick up on what John is saying about the difference between belief and unbelief. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could no longer believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Hear this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So let's spend a, a moment here. What John has said, what you would expect him to say is Jesus did all of these signs, water into wine, healing a man by a pool, preach these sermons, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and then he makes these comments about belief. Uh, some believed, many did not. And you'd expect maybe that he uh, reflects on that unbelief and that belief and says things like, and they didn't believe he was the Christ, or they didn't believe that they needed to be saved from their sins, or they didn't really believe that they could go and be with God in heaven. It's not what he says. Throughout the chapter, there is a word that just threads throughout every single story, and it's this idea of glory. 
What we didn't read is Jesus say, my hour of glory has come. That's around verse 30. What we didn't read is God speaks from heaven and says, uh, I will glorify my name. I have glorified my name. We'll get to that next week. What we did read here is it says that Isaiah believed because he saw the glory of God. And it talks about these men who believed, but their belief wasn't true belief because they uh, loved the glory of men more than the glory of of God. Here's the picture that John gives us of what true belief means, how it plays out in our lives, that belief is a matter of this. It is a matter of loving most what is most glorious. Let me defend that a bit. Uh, the idea of glory, the word glory is one of those that in a setting like this is so familiar, we could take for granted that we know what it means. In fact, glory is not just a church word or a religious word. Glory is a word. It's a cultural word. In fact, um, here is how the word glory appeared in the headlines just the past two weeks. Let me read some to you. One article says this, can the glory of Notre Dame be restored? After serious doubts, Tiger Woods completes long road back to glory. Seattle Seahawks' Russell Wilson gives all glory to God after becoming NFL's highest paid player. Well, who wouldn't, right? <laughs> so in a world of building and in a world of architecture, the question of glory has to do with beauty and quality. Did, did you hear it? So uh, a, a brilliant, iconic church building in Paris burns down. And the question is, will it ever be what it once was? And what it once was was glorious. This uh, legendary golfer, he spirals professionally several years ago as he's spiraling personally. And after years of struggling in a sports that he once dominated, he wins the Masters and he's back to this place of glory. Uh, a quarterback gets a massive payday and he wants the world to know that God gets the glory. In other words, God gets the credit, which I don't actually think it, it counts for him to say that because he doesn't play for God's team. But that's neither here nor there. That's just my stuff. <laughs> Uh, so buildings can have glory and people can achieve glory as like a status. And we talk about seasons that way. I mean, everyone has like a glory day, right? Uh, I went to the mountains with some, some friends of ours this last November and to stand on a mountain looking out at a lake surrounded by mountains as the sun comes up to wake the day, few words work to capture that moment. Like you don't look at that and say, oh, that's neat, right? No, it's, it's glorious. Like glorious is one of those words in, in our, just in our vernacular that is still somewhat sacred. Like it's still something that we uh, somewhat reserve for things that are special. If you came home from work and whoever you live with says, hey, how was work? And you said, man, it was glorious. That means something really special happened. Like you don't follow that up and talk about all the emails you sent, right? You don't follow that up and be like, well, I went to Chick-fil-A for lunch and got cut off in traffic, right? Something unique and weighty and special happened for your day to be glorious. And that's true. And that works. Like that word uh, carries something of great importance and wonder and beauty. And so what I would contend is that it is an appropriate word for lots of things. It is most appropriate for God because God is most glorious. 
God uh, is the thing from which all of these glorious things owe their existence. In other words, the uh, moments in sport or the iconic buildings or the beauty of creation, right? They are just a faint whisper of the glory that is God. That's what the words in the original language, like so the New Testament's written in Greek, the word that we see throughout this chapter of glory is the word doxa, and here's how it's defined. If you just looked it up, it's, it's this, radiance, brightness, splendor, appearance, imagination, reputation, credit, honor, praise, dignity. That's not a definition. It's just all these synonyms, Right? So there's something about the word glory that's like answering the question of the glory of God, and it isn't quite a definition. It just requires this cascade of words and synonyms and metaphors because things that are truly glorious just can't quite be confined to one word. One word falls short of capturing all that it is, and that is the glory of God. I love the Hebrew word for glory. It's It's the word kabod. And it literally means heavy. It means weighty. And I love how simple that idea is that God's just the weightiest thing there is. God is the thing that has most matter. Uh, So the idea is that if there are these scales and you were to take the glory of the sun or the glory of the ocean, something of wonder, something of brilliance, and put it on one side of the scale, and then you were to take the glory of God and put it on the other side, God weighs more. God's heavier, and it's not even close. And so if you were to then ask, okay, I understand that, that sounds familiar to me, but what is it? Like, what could you point to and say, glory, heavy, weighty, brilliance, radiance, splendor, this is what it is when it comes to God? Like, would it be um, his character, him being loving and holy and just? Well, yes. But would it be his power, like him being everywhere at all times and holding all things together? Well, yes. Is it God as creator, the thing from which all other things come from? Yes. Is it God as savior? Yes. And that's the point. Glory is the word that we associate with any revelation of God. Any time that we see anything about God, definition of God, action of God coming out in a way that we can understand it, we point to that and say that's God's glory. And we, all of us, were created to live exclusively for that made from the dust, and we were given something by God. We were given a capacity for something by God, unique from all other creation. You know what it is? We were given the capacity to love, and we're given the capacity to love greatly. And so uh, what belief is, is belief is looking around at all the glory that's around us, tracing that glory to what is most glorious, which is God, and setting our love there. Belief is loving most, what is most glorious. C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion and he says it like this. I, I love this quote. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing, the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. It's how he's converted, that he finally just sees what my heart has longed for. And I've traced that longing back to where all the beauty came from, and it's God. And that's when my heart just sings with contentment and peace and rest. And that's what we're all made for. It's what we're all looking for. And so if belief comes out as loving most what's most glorious, unbelief is misplaced love 
on lesser glory, like loving um, most what's not worthy and what's not most glorious. And this is all of our realities. This is what's lost in Genesis 3. My friends, this is true for every single person in the room that we are uh, born longing to know where the beauty comes from, born longing to know what's most glorious, and our hearts are bent because of sin on responding to that longing by setting our love on people and things and futures that at best numb the longing, but don't come close to satisfying it. I officiated a wedding several years ago, and uh, before the ceremony, the night before, we're at the rehearsal, and uh, we're standing there. The rehearsal has not begun yet, and there's this photographer there who's really eager, and he's just running around snapping pictures. And as I watched him, I noticed that he was spending all of his time around this one bridesmaid, and he's just taking pictures of her. And he's following her around, taking pictures of her. And then she's talking to people and he's taking pictures of her. And then finally, he, he calls the groom over and he asks the bridesmaid to stand next to the groom. And he says, let me take your picture. And the groom was the first one to realize what was going on. He stops and he looks at the photographer and he says, hey, hey, she's not the bride. And he had thought she was. He looks at the bridesmaid and he says this. He says, she's not, she's not the bride. She's just a bridesmaid which I'm sure made her feel really good in that moment, right? And then he pulls his bride-to-be in next to him as if to say, no, 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 she's the point. She's the one that the event is all about. And all of us operate outside of Jesus. We all operate as the photographer with the lens of our heart fixed on everything else except for the one who's the point of the event. The event of creation, the event of life exists to glorify God, that we would love most God who is most glorious in our hearts. The lenses are fixed on things which are not quite as worthy. It's misplaced attention and misplaced affection. You could say it like this, as, uh, as simple as this statement is, that the heart of all sinful hearts is the offer of supreme love to people and things that are not supremely glorious, not supremely worthy. Now, maybe it sounds like I left John for about 10 minutes, so let me bring this back around. Throughout his book, John, unlike any other gospel writer, John portrays Jesus as the one who puts the glory of God on display that we might love rightly what's most glorious. So Jesus comes and yes, it's a rescue mission for sinners. And yes, it's a rescue mission that has to do with sin and salvation. But over and above all of that, it is a mission of recapturing the glory which is lost at the fall. That's why John begins his book. If you remember a year ago when we were there, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his what? Glory, glory as of the only one from the father. It'll say he's the radiance of God's glory. So the beauty and power and love and splendor of God. That's what we've been seeing. That's been the point of every miracle, the point of every teaching. And John gets to the end of that life of ministry. He says, some saw the glory and believed. Most didn't. Most didn't. Unbelief expressed as loving most lesser glories. 
And so where we'll start in our, the rest of our time together is going to the beginning of chapter 12, looking at verses one through six, because in verses one through six, we actually get a picture of belief and a picture of unbelief. We get a picture in Mary of what it looks like to love most what's most glorious. And then we get this picture, this tragic picture in Judas of the wasted life of living for lesser glories. Look at verse one with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What happens right before this, if you were here last week, it's what we spent all of our time talking about, is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And before he does so, he tells us what we're going to see when he does. This sickness does not end in death. This sickness will serve to put the glory of God on display. Do you remember that? And so what we saw was we saw God's glory as Jesus, as a heartbroken Jesus filled with righteous anger goes to the Lazarus's tomb and full of hatred for death and love for Lazarus and love for Martha and love for Mary, Jesus raises Mary's brother back to life. And Mary sees all of that glory and here we get her response. And here's how that comes out in her life. Two ways. The first way is it comes down. She loves Jesus most because he's most glorious. And what you see her do first is she lays down any claim to self-glory. Here's what I mean. She's the lady of the house. This family's wealthy. They have a lot of servants. And so what that meant was that meant that they had both Jewish servants and they had Gentile servants. The reason they had Gentile servants is because there was a kind of service that Jews were not allowed to perform because it was considered too demeaning. And so the Gentile servants would have to do that. You know what it was? Foot washing. And so this house is packed and Mary gets this expensive oil surrounded by all of her guests, surrounded by all the fancy things, surrounded by all of the servants, and she gets on the ground and she washes Jesus's feet. It wasn't her job. Culturally, it was beneath her and she did not care. Like whatever glory she has, whatever glory everyone expected her to try and preserve, she lays down to become a servant. I think Mary, outside of Jesus, I think Mary might be just the most encouraging picture in the Bible. Um, in a world, especially our world, that obsesses so much over what you have and what you can do and what your status is in terms of your career or your marital status or how many kids you have or what your talents are. Here is Mary, a single woman that never gets married or has kids that we know of. We don't know what she's gifted at. We don't know what she does for a living. We don't know what her talents are, but what we are told every time she's mentioned is what's highlighted about her is that she's always in the same place. She's always at the feet of Jesus. And she's honored in that. So in Luke, she's at the feet of Jesus as a learner and she's saying, Jesus, you can teach me. In chapter 11, last week, she's at the feet of Jesus as a mourner. Jesus, you can comfort me. And here she's at the feet of Jesus as a servant. Jesus, you can have my life. Jesus, you, you can rule over my life, right? 
She lays all of that down and says, I am yours. Now that idea of belonging to someone, that idea of being ruled by someone is just incredibly unpopular in our culture. It's something we bristle at. We do not like being told what to do, right? Yet, everyone serves something. Everyone. Like self-rule at its core is an illusion. Everyone's being taught by someone. Everyone's being discipled by some ideology or some influence. Like for instance, even this idea that I run my own life and no one can tell me how to live. We didn't come up with that idea. No one in the room did. That's actually a really new idea. 500 years ago, that wasn't even a thing. That is us being discipled by and taught by and ruled by a hyper-individualistic culture. And in listening to that, something else is telling me how to live. So I have a ruler, and that ruler says, don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. And I say, yes, sir, and I'm ruled. It's an illusion. So the question is not, um, how can I escape service? The question is, am I being ruled by, am I serving what's most glorious? See, our natural bent is to try and follow whoever or whatever will allow us to hold on to as much of our own glory as we can. And Mary didn't even try to play that game. Mary kneels down. She humbles herself to the reality that she's not Jesus. She's not the one that's most glorious. She says, this is all so much bigger than I am. And so she's happy to take her place once again at Jesus's feet. Look, pride tells us that we are more in this world than we really are but we know we're not. We have some sort of inclination that we're not. And so to, to, to reconcile that, what we have to do is we have to try and shrink our world to a little world so that it's a size that's manageable for us. And then we believe that we have control over our life and control over our job and control over our money and control over our things and control over how everyone thinks about us and feels about us and how impressive we are to everyone. And let me ask you this, how's it going? How's the stress level? Like, what does it feel like to have to worry about getting all you need? And what's it feel like to worry about keeping all you have? And what's it feel like worrying about managing what everyone thinks about you? I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like slavery. It feels like being ruled by my fear and being ruled by my inadequacy and being ruled by my insecurity. That's what it is. G.K. Chesterton, he is a... Um, author and theologian, he has this quote that I just can't stop thinking about. He says, how much happier would you be if you only knew that these people cared nothing about you? Meaning, if you knew they cared, if you, if you just knew they didn't care and you couldn't do anything to make them care, how much happier would you be to give up on that? How much larger would your life be if yourself could become smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny theater in which your own little plot is always being played and find yourself under freer skies. I love that illustration, like that picture that I've created this tiny theater around my little life and my little plot about my little life is the only thing playing. And outside of that theater, the world is just so much bigger and it's actually in that big world, not in that small theater where I'm really free. We are not as scared of a big world as we are a small one. I promise you that. 
A small world gives us the illusion that we can be in control and that we can manage not just our lives but everyone else's life in our small world. And the fear and the devastation and the anxiety and the insecurity comes when we continue to run into this reality that even over a small world, we don't have what it takes to be God. And you and I don't live in a small world as powerless gods. It's just not true. It's a fantasy. We live as small humans in a big world that is controlled by a bigger God who has never not been in control of that big world. And how do you break out of that small theater and enter into that big world controlled by a big God? By loving most what's most glorious. Loving lesser glory takes you back into the theater where I'm just spun up and all that I'm confronted with that I can't control. Loving most what's most glorious, you know where that takes you? The love of God as revealed through the glorious son that takes me next to Mary at his feet, which is where I was created to be. And in that place, I am actually free to enjoy not just his glory, but to enjoy my life because I'm no longer pretending like I can try to keep some of that for myself. So Mary sees the glory of Jesus and she lets go of this self-glory. And then the next thing we see, she not only lays down self-glory, but she lets go of the glory found in places that most people are really afraid of losing. The oil that she has is worth about a year's wage. So even if you just don't account for 2,000 years of inflation, that would have been $12,000. It's a little higher in than the essential oils we have today, right? So even if this family is wealthy, which they probably are, this is not the kind of purchase that wealthy people just make every day. It was the kind of thing that they either saved up for, and then they had this oil imported from India where it was made, and it's a a once-in-a-lifetime buy. More likely than that, this is a family heirloom. It's not just something that's so expensive that you own it once in a lifetime. It's something that's passed down from generation to generation because it's so precious, because it's so priceless. So that's how expensive it is. That's the oil that she uses. And then how much of it does she use? A pound. It means she broke the bottle and poured all of it over his feet. And then she doesn't grab a towel. She lets down her hair and the room gasps. Here's why. In the first century, Jewish women always wore their hair up in public because it represented dignity and it represented purity. A woman in public with her hair down was trying to send a message to the public about her morals. And what Mary does is not only does she take the expensive oil and not only does she use all of it, but she lets her hair down and thousands of dollars of oil pour out over Jesus' feet and her hair falls down over to dry them. Do you see what she's letting go of? The glory that uh, everyone else just fights so hard to preserve, the glory that's found in possessions and the glory that's found in our image in front of other people. She lets the priceless possession just run out over his feet. And then as a single woman at the feet of a single man lets her hair down in front of him and invites the rumors and invites the judgment and does not care because there's something more glorious in front of her. So I could summarize the belief we see coming out in Mary's life by just leaning on the age-old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of what? Of his glory and his grace. It's belief, loving most, what's most glorious. As beautiful as that is, unbelief is as tragic as that. Look at verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Have you ever wondered how this actually happens? Like, have you ever thought of Judas Uh, This guy who spends three years with Jesus and at the end of that three years helps orchestrate his death. It's not like Judas um, closed his eyes for every miracle. It's not like he plugged his ear for every sermon. It's not like he skipped out on every meal together. Like just what we know about human interaction, what was true about Judas and Jesus is that they spent time together, they sang together, they celebrated together, and they probably hugged a lot. And at the end of all of that, He betrays him. How does that happen? John tells us. Judas adored the glory of things and people more than he did the glory of Jesus. Like what you see in Mary, you see the opposite of that in Judas. These things that she lets go of, they're actually weightier in Judas's life than Jesus's. So he sees this woman humbling himself and pouring out her finest things. And he says, hey, why wasn't that given to the poor? He doesn't care about the poor. John tells us that. He's trying to manage his image in front of people. He wanted to be perceived as an activist when in reality he's a thief. And that's what image management is all about, trying to present as being someone in front of other people that I'm not when I'm all by myself. And then he's going to present before the authorities and he's going to betray Jesus and then he's going to come to Jesus and kiss him like he loves him and he doesn't. And then he's offended by uh, the amount of money that's used on Jesus's feet as he watches the oil pour out over Jesus's feet. And then he interrupts that sacred moment with his question. What he's really saying is, Jesus, you are not worth all of this. The glory value he placed on Jesus was less than the glory value he placed on things. And what he found most glorious was best seen in his life, not by what he said in public, but by what he did in private. John says when no one's around, he would take money out of the money bag. Jesus's money that was given to Jesus's ministry and he would steal it in private. And one day, just like always happens, he lives his life in public as a disciple, in private, he's a thief. And one day the private spills out into the public and where Mary says, Jesus, you're worth all I have and more. Judas says, Jesus, I know exactly how much you're worth. You're worth 30 pieces of silver, which is a third the price of what the oil that Mary wastes all over his feet was. The tragedy is that the one who was so close to the glory of God lives a legacy of serving Satan. And I mean that. What John tells us is that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Is that not Judas? He's a thief who steals from Jesus, helps kill him, and then in remorse destroys himself. Friends, pay attention to what weighs most in our lives. Pay attention 
to what you get most upset about, what you want to most protect, what matters most. Because in that, what we're seeing, what John is putting on display for us is the difference between the abundant life in Jesus and the kind of life you live that you can't actually keep. Like if we were just to just objectively think of these two people, which one of them is actually living? Like which one of them would you want as a friend? Which one of them would you ask to babysit your kids, right? That if you look at the quality of life lived, who would you point to and say is really alive? The one who's willing to lose all of it for the glory that has most captivated her heart. That's Mary. This is Jesus's point in verse 23. Let me read it. It'll be the last section we look at and we'll pick the rest back up next week. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I've always been a little confused by that passage. What does it mean to hate your life and love the one that you're gonna lose, right? I know that Jesus doesn't hate his life and Jesus doesn't want us to hate our lives, right? So what does that mean? Well, we're back to what we said last Sunday, that Christianity is not about afterlife with God. Christianity is about current life with God through Jesus. The life that we most want, the eternity we're longing for, erupts into our present. And what Jesus is saying here is you have to decide if you will live for what lasts forever or if you will live for what you can't keep. That's the decision. So Jesus is what's most glorious. He's what the heart longs for. Eternity's in the present right now. And that is a glory that is worth dying for. And it is the only glory by which anyone actually lives. So last week, I introduced this idea that there are really three places we tend to go in response to that ache we all share for eternity. It's like we live on this triangle and we float to these corners and one is coping and the other is these stand-in saviors and the other is circumstantial change, just when everything else in my life looks different than it does now. And why I'm back to that now is because now we can say and see based on what John has said that all of that is really just the consequence of misplaced glory like what C.S. Lewis calls the longing to know where the beauty comes from. What Augustine says, you've made us for yourself. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. That longing, that restlessness is an ache for what we were made for. It's an ache for God. And how we end up on the triangle, like floating from one corner to the other, is that we just don't honor that ache by loving most what's most glorious. And so uh, I have all these mechanisms for coping, and that might look different in all of our lives. In my life, that might look different than the way it looks in your life. And maybe for some of us, that's more destructive. And for others, that's fairly neutral. But look, the difference between the alcohol addiction as a way of coping and the iPhone addiction as a way of coping just does not matter all that much if both serve to numb my reality and keep me from loving what I was made for. So I float down to the relationships and these stand-in saviors. And I begin to get some clarity that maybe why I'm so hypercritical about their faults is not because I'm for them and not because I want them to flourish, but because I'm expecting out of them a glory they do not possess that only belongs to God. They'll never be enough to fill what they, what the, what they don't have the resources to even begin to satisfy. 
And so then I float over here and I'm starting to say once again, when, man, when I get the job, when I get the girl, when I get the family, when I get the vacation, when I get the break, and it's not the when that is missing in our lives, friends, it's the who. It's not the glory that comes on the other side of change in my life. It's the glory of God who in Jesus brings eternity into my life. The invitation, the I am the resurrection and the life invitation is Jesus offering the life that we can keep forever, inviting us to love the glorious God that none of us can live without. And don't we know that that is not a non-Christian problem that goes away when you become a Christian? Can we just all in honesty agree on that together? I'm 25 years into this life of learning to love Jesus most, and I know all three of those corners all too well. So the question I'm asking in my personal life that I'm just welcoming you in on is how do we do less floating around and how do we just, how do we really begin learning to love most what's most glorious? Jesus gets us there when he says this, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now, it's gonna take us to next Sunday to really complete this thought, but if we could just start it together, we can begin to understand what he's saying by asking two questions of ourselves. The first question is this, what do you most want to be said about you? Not to be too dramatic, but if you could write your own eulogy, what do you want to be said? And probably it's a lot of things, but probably very few of those things have to do with what you can do. It's probably not, man, he could close deals. It's probably not, man, she can really sing. It probably has more to do with who you are, right? Good spouse, good parent, faithful child, right? Second question, who do you most want to hear all of that from? That matters, right? So for me, one of them is I, I want... I want it to be said that I was a good father, I do. But I wanna hear that from Carrie and the kids, right? If I'm at Walmart all by myself and a stranger comes up to me and I'm all alone and they say, hey, you're a really good dad. That's weird, right? That doesn't mean anything. I'd be like, look, do you wanna come to church with me sometime? There's something going on in, in your life, right? I wanna hear it from the people that matter. I wanna hear it from the people whose words have weight and they carry and they know best because to hear things like that, let me, let me, Use the most appropriate word to describe that. There's a glory to that, to be honored for who you are. Look, the glory that we are really after is that we want to matter to those who matter most. That's it. The glory of the world, the glory of man is all about attention for what you have and what you do, and it's fleeting. That's why in pop culture, we cycle through our heroes so quickly because it's just about attention for what you have and what you do. And when someone else has more or someone else does better, you're out and they're in. And that's all the glory the world can offer. The glory of God, did you hear it? It's honor for who you are. 
those who serve me, my father will honor him. The way Matthew puts it, there's a glory day coming where it says, well done, good and faithful servant. The ache, my friends, is satisfied when we see in Jesus that we matter to the one who matters most. And that mattering comes to us as an honor from God for who he is making us in Christ. So follow me. That's why there's so much contradiction and frustration and anxiety in so many of our lives because what the, the glory we want is to matter to the one who matters most, but so much time and energy in our lives is spent highlighting what we do to people that matter, but they don't matter most. That is a recipe for a wasted life. And the best place that gets you is back in the triangle, floating from one corner to the next. Okay, how do I know I matter to God then? How do I get the honor that comes from God that satisfies that longing for glory? Well, it's why John spends the rest of his book pointing our eyes towards the cross. The cross is the place where the glory of God is just so much so clearly seen The cross is the place where God's glory as expressed through a cascade of words of brilliant and beauty and love and it carries the weight of both God's holiness and God's justice and that place of glory in the cross is where our unbelief for loving most what is not most glorious is forgiven past, present, and future and it's the place of glory where we see we matter to the one who matters most. It is not just the glory that is most glorious. It is the only glory that will love you despite the fact that you've ignored it. So the starting place and the staying place for our hearts that long for that eternity is the glorious death of a crucified and lifted up Savior who from that place draws all men to himself, which we'll look at next week. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your beauty, at your splendor, and really all I'm saying is searching again for synonyms of the word glory. It's who you are. It's what comes out of you. It's what we need. It's what we long for. And I probably, God, just in my own limits, uh, did not adequately represent that this conversation is so much less watershed moment. It's so much less where you flip a switch and so much more where you just learn to take steps back to what our hearts long for. So God, would you help us as this room is full of so many who are just faithfully uh, on this journey with you, trying to learn over and again what it looks like, God, to lay down self-glory, what it looks like to let go of what everyone else is afraid of losing because they're asking the question, if I don't have all the things, if I don't have all the opinions, how will I know my life matters? And you've answered the question for us, God. You have. Not because of what we have, not because of, of what we hold on to, but because of what you've done for us. And we thank you for that. We're different. We're different because of it, Lord God. So we love you. And we are at your feet, Jesus, glorifying you who is most glorious.
We love you. Amen.